Hey, Night Owls. Welcome to Isn't It Past Your Bedtime. I'm Krista. And I'm Rachel. And this episode, we're going into the FBI. Dun dun. Dun 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 dun. Oh, no. Like, wait. I was going to say, technically, that's like, yeah, that's for you. But I don't know what the FBI's theme song is. Like, they haven't come out and told that us what they want us to That was just the first thing use. that my brain came up with. So we're yeah. going with it. Yeah, I think it's better, anyways. So, yeah. So this. <laughs> This theme was basically brought on because Rachel had a book she wanted to read and cover, and we needed to find a theme to make it work. So we did. Yep. So when we get to her, you guys can figure out why. Um, but yeah, so I'm just going to jump in. So I, there's, there's actually like more books about the FBI than I there thought. There are none of them, honestly. Yeah, they're like kind of all over the place. So there's a couple that I had been thinking about. Like I was going to do American Predator, which is about Israeli keys. But then I, uh, my boyfriend was out of town for work and I really didn't want to read about like the serial killer that nobody knew about while I was home alone. Cause I, I, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I get the spook spooks already. So, and then there's one book that I wanted to do, but my library didn't have it and I'm too cheap to buy a nonfiction book. So I didn't. And then the other book I wanted to do that I was really excited. There was one about an FBI undercover agent but the library just gave it to me yesterday so they were a little too slow so the book i ended up doing is stalling for time my life as an fbi hostage negotiator by gary nosner i think it's it's either nosner or nosner i don't know he does not give us a pronunciation guide in his book which seems kind of rude for like a biography like i'm supposed to know who he is so this book is basically his like memoir biography kind of thing of his like 30 years that he worked for the FBI. So he retired in 2003. So he started in what would that be 1973. And basically, Dang. like from the time I think he was like 10 or 12, he like knew that he wanted to be an FBI agent because what is it mickey mouse clubhouse i think was what it was like i think that was back on oh the my 70s. gosh but they like did a thing where they like went and they interviewed um what is it hoover and mm-hmm. were like oh yeah all these things and he watched it and was like that's what i want to do and like would not shut up about it but at the time you had to be 21 to become an fbi agent that might still be true right i don't know but so he had like gotten some random job when he graduated and then he had talked to an FBI recruiter and they're like, well, what you should do is basically come in as like an admin professional because like admin staff only have to be 18. They're like, come in as that. You can do that for three years doing all the paperwork stuff and it'll mm-hmm. probably give you like a leg up. So he did that. Uh, he ended up meeting the woman who would end up being his wife. She got hired at 18 as a stenographer, making like almost double what he did, like badass like freaking a apparently stenographers is where it's at. Her. which also i do think that is still true stenographers apparently make a good amount of money and i wish i had known that because i'm a pretty good at typing i love gossip and i would love to hear the stories in court like yes i know it'd be messed up but tell me about how you murdered him i don't want to hear about i'm like, interested yeah you know the icky like the raping of things i but i could do it I don't but need that. Yeah. At this point, I feel like it's too late. I have already surpassed stenography school. So, anyway, so he basically kind of is already working there and he turns 21 and he gets a job as an FBI mm-hmm. agent. But he ends up getting put in, I think, with the terrorism group or something like that at first. Because when he starts, there is no negotiation. 
there are like that's not a thing basically how it's working is that like cops are showing up to these hostage type situations and they're going in full force which statistically the best yeah exactly and statistically it's not good like turns out like when you have somebody who's having some kind of psychotic break like which we typically know that is what it now going in guns a blazing really bad outcome for the hostages who would have thought and so pretty much this book is one him kind of telling his so he ends up actually being like a pretty big player in getting the negotiation like the fbi hostage negotiation to becoming a team training like police departments across the nation and the world like the fbi like helps out and like all like they'll go to like other countries and like help Mm -hmm. teach people about these things um but then basically it's him just kind of telling you about all these cases that he worked so i'm going to tell you the ones that i remember that i liked so it starts out with this one and this one is um more like in the middle of his career i think but basically it's this guy what is it it's charlie and charlie has taken kidnapped his ex-wife cheryl and his son little charlie and it's been like a week and like it got reported like 20 within like i think 24 hours or something like that it was reported that cheryl and little charlie were missing and they like did all these things and they figured out that that was it and so he gets called because the hr team which is the hostage response team within the fbi these are like more your swat type guys they're like they've been like interacting with him like they're like closed up in this room at the top like the top floor of a room and they're down at the bottom of the stairs like trying to talk to this guy and get him to come out and i think the main reason that this whole part like sticks in my brain is that he basically starts talking like uh gary is telling us that most of the people who are like hostage takers and because most of these people are men all the ones in the story are men not a single woman is anybody that he is like trying to like rain it back in and then not to say it can't happen women can do anything it's we want usually men we can take a hostage if we want but typically we don't um but basically what it is is that he's like it's men who are control freaks who finally lost control over their wives because they view their wives and children as property and all yep. of a sudden their property has got a mind of its own how dare it um mm-hmm. so I, I was like yeah that's that's accurate and the fact that he was like thinking this probably it was probably like the 80s i think or something like that 80s or 90s that he's thinking this i was like forward thinker gary which he was he was very forward thinking for his time like when you hear some of these other stories uh basically like all these things so how the fbi had been teaching negotiations and stuff is that it was quid pro quo i will not give you anything if you will not give me something and so at one point charlie is like hey like we want to get the clothes out of the dryer because cheryl had managed because basically when like charlie came to like kidnap her he was like come with me or i'm gonna kill you and she's not dumb she was like well mm-hmm. my best part of survival is to try to come with you and figure out a way to get away later so she right. goes and then she managed to convince him like hey we've been on the road for like a week it's snowing or close or cold we should like go to this abandoned house and do laundry and so charlie was like we want to do laundry and the negotiator was like no we can't do that unless you can release little charlie or something like that um Mm -hmm. and so when gary shows up they tell him this and he's like okay he was like i know it kind of goes against what we've been teaching but i'm gonna give him the clothes he's like i need to like earn his trust somehow and so he's like hey charlie new guy gary is there anything i can do and charlie's like yeah we want the clothes out of the dryer and he was like all right i can do that for you and then but he had already had the clothes like brought up like they're sitting in a bag at his feet and so he's like pretending like doing the like pretend walk away stop 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 like in a freaking cartoon kind of a thing and then it's like okay yeah they're here um and so, and like, this is the very first case he's telling us about. 
And so basically how it like ended up is that he had like told the snipers and like the HRT team, which is the SWAT team, of was like, you'd like shoot him if you need to. Like he, we honestly think that he will shoot. Like it was kind of like suicide by cop. Like, mm-hmm. a, what is that? Murder, murder, suicide by cop is kind of what they were worried that he was going to do. But they finally convinced him to come out. And like, he had like Cheryl in front of him and like little Charlie on his back. But like, I think Cheryl like tripped or something. Somebody tripped and it gave literally just enough space for the sniper to take him out. Oh, but apparently Cheryl wrote Gary, a sent him like a Christmas card later that year to say, Hey, like, thanks. Like, like, cause she wasn't allowed to like speak at all. Like when he was like, is everyone okay up there? Like mm-hmm. under her head, couldn't speak and stuff like that. But she was like, she was like, just no, like hearing your voice was like super calming and like little Charlie's in therapy, blah, 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 blah. So that was pretty cool. That was awesome. And then, but then, so that's his first story. And then he goes back to like telling you kind of his boring life of coming up to it, which is not really exciting. He just started at 18 as an admin and had to do paperwork and didn't like doing paperwork as an admin professional myself. I had zero sympathy. I understand, but I had no sympathy um, because I know, I know where the book is going, right? Like he has this wonderful 30 year career. So like, it'll be fine in the end. Um, The damn paperwork. Yeah. So then he ends up like doing like this, like terrorism type stuff. And so he is basically like traveling the nation or not the nation, the country, the world. Wow. I really struggled with what word I wanted to use just then. He's like going all over the world to like all these different places because like some point earlier in his career, like in the eighties ish, um, the government, the american government made it like illegal to kidnap an american citizen anywhere in the world so like if you kidnap an american citizen it doesn't matter where you are we're gonna come we're gonna come try and get them back appreciate that though yeah yeah i like that part as an american citizen that was nice nice effort um so yeah so he's like kind of doing that um but he's also getting like really interested in this like hot this negotiation type stuff. And so he's like learning as much as he can. And, at, and they like started up a tiny little program, but only like three people a year or something like that got invited to join the program. And hmm. he happened to know a guy to get him an interview to get him in. Very like exclusive. Yeah. So he manages to get in and he does like the two week training and he becomes like somebody so now he's like getting called out to these places but at the same time like not a lot of people are knowing like what this is and they're still very much like no we go in guns a blazing like it's worked and then he's like not really i mean a lot of your hostages die so bad or a lot of your like employees die also bad um but so he gets going and then he starts training more and more like police departments and stuff like that, like sheriff's offices and stuff. And so people are like really excited about this, but because usually they're the first ones that are going to respond, right? If somebody calls it in, like you're not going to get the FBI to show up unless you live in Quantico. Like if you live right there, then yeah, maybe the FBI is going to show right. up right away. But those of us that live on the it's West Coast, minute. we got nothing. I like, mean, they have field offices everywhere. Yeah. But if you don't live like next to like, next to field office it's still going to take them a bit yeah and even then like when it's dispatched it's not going to be dispatched hey we're going to go ahead dispatch the fbi no you're going to get your local police officer yeah that's true so that's gonna be the first person that's going to come so then he talks about some other cases and to be perfectly honest i don't remember a whole lot of them um so he has like he talks about like his first major um siege which was a um what was it Oh, yeah. So there was this guy who um, boarded an Amtrak train with his sister and his niece and nephew. And his niece and nephew were like two and nine months or something like that. 
um and all of a sudden he like starts shooting or they start shouting in spanish um i think he's from puerto rico maybe i don't remember exactly either way him and his sister start shouting in spanish super heated and so it gets kind of called in and they like shoots a bullet out or something like that so they stop the train they detach it or whatever all these things are going on and it was like a week or 10 days or something that this like standoff basically goes on and um gary is trying to be like hey like no like we need to talk to him like he manages to get people in like negotiators who like are actually like trained so at first it's just there's a random emt who shows up who speaks spanish so they grab him so they're having to feed him lines while somebody's translating back and then they manage to get then they manage to get negotiators who are trained negotiators who also speak spanish so they get this team but then this emt kid still has to stand there because he has to translate in real time to gary because gary doesn't speak spanish yet i don't think he ever really does but he picks up a little bit as he's going on yeah um but yeah so it's like seven to ten days that these people are like stuck in there and then at one point they like manage to sneak up and like put like a hearing device on the car and they're like we haven't like heard the sister's voice in a while like we think she might be dead we're kind of worried about it and then yeah it turns out he killed her and then so now you have like a two or three year old and a nine month old and they're like hey like we're concerned about these fucking kids and he was like he's like send in iv supplies send in iv supplies but they don't for some reason because so gary was like i think we should he was like i think we should take the chance like yeah we're not going to get anything back on this but i think we should because these children likely will die I guess maybe mm-hmm. at this point it's only been like three days. Yeah, I think at this point it's been three. So maybe it, the whole thing only goes on for like five days. Because I just, realized, I just realized without water you'll die in three and these are children. Um, yeah, it's a very long time. And it's like summer. So like this oh, train gosh. car is getting roasty McToasty during the day. Um, and so like they, but so Gary is trying to say like, I think we should do this. He gets told no because like the guy won't give anything back and so ultimately i think like the next day or something because he had like a whole big old bag of guns and so they managed to finally get him to convince him to like lower out a gun and they'll send up like fruit or something like that or like water and juice and stuff like that so they do that and then turns out the gun was jammed it didn't work to begin with but he was like whatever like he still gave us something like he didn't have to do that and so they're like kind of trying to go back and forth and like they're bringing up like pediatricians to try to like listen in on this listening device to like give their feedback and like finally they bring one and they're like the nine-month-year-old has 12 hours they're like maybe the three-year-old maybe can make it 24 like we'll see who knows but at this point the sister's been dead for probably like three days oh my three gosh days in like Awful. summer heat in a metal box disgusting and like that's their mom so like that's fucked up mm-hmm. and then um yeah so then like at one point they're like like t- kind of towards the end they're just like talking to him and i'm like so like the kids da, 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 what's going on and he's like oh yeah the nine of is dead like he died whatever oh, I, woke, like, no, but, oh I woke up gosh. and yeah it was yeah very like no emotion he was like i woke up this morning and he was blue so blase yeah like not a fucking care and this poor fucking negotiator who was like so it wasn't gary it was the spanish speak one of the spanish speaking uh-huh. ones was just like had to like walk away and like started like praying and came back Awful. and was like i just prayed for them like and then he, he was like and then this other negotiator went like totally off book and was like hand me out the three-year-old out of the window like we need we need to save this child this other child will die like but of course like a whole, so basically the whole negotiator's job is to try to convince these people that like 
if you can, it's like, oh, hey, like you maybe you haven't done anything bad yet. Or like, hey, like we can do this. Like at one point, this guy wanted like his lawyer. And so they got his lawyer and they're like, see, your lawyer's here. Like we can help. And so he like managed to get him, convince him to like hand the girl over, which like negotiators are not supposed to go out in where they can die. Like you can't be killed over the phone, fun fact. So they're not supposed to do stuff like that. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, so like that was kind of like his first big one. And it ended up with two deaths three i can't remember if he died or not if Um, the bad guy died um but then he ends up having to go to like a prison riot which i don't remember where that one was um and so that kind of like starts the prison because the other one he was also there at waco which i feel like waco is a pretty big one people know about yeah so he went to this prison riot like six eight months before waco happens and he had been like negotiating 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 talking it through he really thought that they were making like headway because what he says he's like after like seven to ten days without like a lot of food and stuff like a lot of hostage takers just get tired and they're bored and they also want it to end so they're willing to take whatever deal was offered on day one there but they're just finally worn down enough and so he was like getting really close but then the guy who was like in charge of like the hrt the swatty type people was like nope we're gonna go in we're gonna surprise them at night and so they had like pretended like given and like gave him this really big super caloric rich diet like dinner and all of these treats and snacks to kind of make him tired and complacent so that way they'd be sleeping harder when they all good idea SWAT came in yeah it was super smart and so it worked out but then the SWAT guy got it in his head that it was oh all just the SWAT like he does not like I can't remember his name um but he the SWAT guy like did not care about negotiations he thought it was stupid he was very much like this is how we've always done it. This is what we're going to do. Meh. So then you go to freaking Waco and Waco was like, what? I think it's like 50 some odd days that Waco was happening. And like part of the whole reason that Waco was a shit show. So one, like I've heard about Waco, but I thought it was really interesting hearing about it his, from his perspective. Because I feel like a lot of the things that we hear about Waco don't get the negotiator side of it. Where like, so like super towards the end, um, they start blaring like the flashing lights and all those weird freaking soys trying to like the psychological like fuck up with these people. And like a lot of people have always thought that that was the negotiator's idea, but it wasn't. It was like the tactical side because the head guy who was in charge decided that he didn't want uh, negotiations and tactic to talk to each other. They wanted, he wanted everything ran through him. And so because of that, there was like a lot of communication that like, didn't get passed on so like gary was like he's like yeah your new tactical guy said he wants to like play all this psychological shit um Mm. that he knows about because it like oh they use it overseas or somewhere and he's like but it didn't even work over there like whatever like whatever why would it work here then whatever case this person was citing like he was like yeah like it made sense then to use it but it didn't work it does not make sense here like we had slowly been breaking it down because he was trying to do this like trickle trickle flow stream so slowly getting the kids to come out like every child it was like oh here's these two kids these two kids these two kids the two elderly people like and then he started having adults coming out willingly who wanted to not be there anymore they wanted to get out and he was like eventually he was like we'll have enough people that the people left will want to come because it'll break their like they're not going to have this hold like he won't have this hold over them anymore because so many of these people that they believed were gone and like every time that a kid was brought out they'd like like call and be like oh hey yep we got little timmy little timmy talk to your mom and then 
like there was like one where like they like showed all of them like happy and they were like oh my gosh like they're actually really being taken care of by all these people like all these social workers and stuff like wow maybe the government isn't quite as bad as we thought how strange um yeah so you like hear basically his whole side of Waco which was freaking awesome like I loved that and then after that he goes to Jordan Montana which was a similar one but they had learned a lot from Waco and so that one actually was that one was 81 days it's the longest like basically standoff siege whatever in like American history as of the writing in 2003 I don't think that there's been anything since then because I haven't heard of anything uh but I also don't watch the news so don't quote me on that but yeah so they like had learned like a lot from that um and so that one was awesome like even hearing about that I don't remember like all the facts but basically what that one I think was was that like they were trying to arrest these people for a whole bunch of like um tax evasion and mail fraud and stuff like that because they had like found some weird loophole where they could write a certified check but it would bounce but then they could so Hmm. they could but they could like take out they could get their car with the loan from the certified check but then it would bounce or something like that and so they like had all these things but the jordan montana people were called the freemans and they didn't believe in like our government as it is because it was like not that Mm. maybe the freemans were in texas i can't remember exactly they all kind of start to blend that's the other thing most of these big ones are very right-wing leaning people anti-government folk Gotcha. That makes sense. They typically have their own Messiah and stuff like that. Messiah. Um, so they do kind of blend. And also, I will say, after Waco and Jordan, he had some really freaking boring story that he went to. I can't remember what it was. Uh-huh. But it drug. And I was like, homie, I get that this is the next part of your life. But I am, or maybe it was, no, it was between Waco and Jordan. But I was just like, I am so bored and I don't care. I don't care about this one at all. I'm over let's, it. Let's get back to the good stuff. So that kind of was boring. Right. Um, things that I like. There are, I mean, so there's also a ton of more stories that he talked. I mean, the book's not giant. It was like a little over 200 pages, but there's definitely more stories that he talked about. Um, he gave a lot of information about how the FBI slowly did become like actually have these like hostage negotiation teams and the process of getting people to care. Cause like the director at the time when Waco happened, was not really big into negotiations didn't really see the benefit of it uh, after right. he retired whoever took over for him did so like that person was like yep like when jordan was happening the 91 day one he was like you know however long it takes that's how long it takes where like with waco they spent like over five million dollars or something like that of government mm-hmm. money it was like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a day or something like Jeez. that spent on everything and so like there was a lot of pressure to wrap it up which i do get but yeah, I get that. A lot of people maybe wouldn't have died. And also Waco really, really tarnished the FBI's image in the American people's eyes. And there was they had a big hill to climb after that. The FBI. Oh, they did. definitely did. Yeah. yeah. And so hmm. yeah, there's a lot of like things to give and take. One thing that I really liked about him, so he has a little introduction where basically he says in really polite terms that um if he pisses off his former colleagues because they don't like the light in which he portrayed them well fuck you because uh you did these things and i'm not gonna lie about it so i appreciate that but there was a case um that he covered it was like middle-ish of his career and it was kind of like the charlie one that i was talking about before where it was this cop had his his wife decided to leave him or maybe 
yeah i think his it was his ex-wife got a new lover or something like that so this cop one day snaps and like pulls over a woman he's in his uniform in his police car rapes her on the side of the road gives her his business card and then goes and like kidnaps his wife and so like thankfully apparently the fucking police people that that woman went to believed her about her raping oh but my gosh. either way so he like basically snapped like a man lost control of his possession who he believes his wife's possession and he snaps um and so uh maybe that wasn't it whatever it doesn't matter basically something like that happens and so then sorry some of them all blend he has a bunch of tiny little ones like this um but either way basically a husband loses control of his wife snaps kidnaps her um negotiation is doing their part doing their part doing their part like really finally starting to break this guy down mm-hmm. and negotiator is like hey he was like like when you come out he's like i want you to take your shirt off so that way like my snipers can see that you're not armed like nobody is gonna harm you he's like i will walk in front of you. it wasn't gary this different negotiator he's like i will walk in front of you so that way you know for sure that like you are not gonna get shot at like they're not gonna shoot through me to shoot you that won't happen um because mm-hmm. i think at this point so it wasn't the cop one the cop one was a different guy that was also a shit show um but this one was like this guy hadn't killed anybody yet and so he was like, hey, like, like you haven't actually done like that bad of stuff yet. Like no one's dead. Like you've, you've made, you've made some poor choices. Sure. But like, we can work with you. Like, you're not going to die all these things. Um, and so he's like, okay, okay. Like, and he's like thinking in him and but he's not really responding. Like the bad guy is not really responding yet. And this captain shows up and is like, I want to go and tell me has 10 minutes. And the negotiator is like, uh, I don't really want to like put a time limit on it. Oh, because he had his kids. So it was him and his two kids in there. No wife, just him and his two kids. Maybe he had already killed his wife. I'm sorry. These are all really starting to blend. Either way. Okay. It's him and at least one child in the room. I know that for sure. And, uh, but so the negotiator can't like say no to this captain because it's a captain. And Mm -hmm. he's like, hey, yeah, my boss here is saying that you got 10 minutes to comply at nine minutes and 55 seconds he shot the boy or shot the child and shot himself when they when hrt rushed in he had his shirt off so he was going to comply with what the negotiator said he had a shirt off just like the negotiator had asked like he was definitely going to and then the captain was like well i I meant it as like a bluff like i didn't actually mean it and gary was like you don't bluff with hostage takers but what I appreciated about no. the story and like why I'm bringing it up is that he never said the captain's name. I went back to look after I finished that story of it. I went back to be like, did he ever tell me who this shitty little captain was? And he never does because he says like in it, he's like, cause it was earlier on. He was like, yeah, like he made a mistake and there were like a whole bunch, like the, oh, so he didn't kill the wife. He had, the guy had kidnapped the kids, but didn't kill the wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because the uh, wife ended up getting like a million dollars in like a wrongful death due to like she like sued and was like y'all were negligent with this because he was gonna freaking come out and gary was like i agree like she probably could have got she should have gotten more like they fucked it up they should have listened to us everything could have been fine like those kids did not need to die he didn't need to die um so i did like that like he definitely calls out names but he calls out names for the bigger ones like that are like it fucked up like when waco gets fucked up like he'll say everybody's name but we all already know everybody's names like we can look up those names they're in all the documentaries they're in everything like right. that um 
so I appreciated that. All in all, I think I'm going to give it like 3.75. Like most of the stories were good. Some of them were boring. But I mean, it's not really his fault that like after Waco, he did something boring. And then he went I to mean, Jordan. Comparatively, everything's going to be boring. Yeah. Um, yeah. So some of them kind of like seem to drag on. Excuse me. Drag on. I didn't necessarily care about all of it. Um, but it was it was nice to see. It was nice to learn kind of about how the FBI like hostage negotiation team like came to be and the fact that like not a lot of people even within the FBI and stuff appreciated it like a lot of like local police did like they definitely saw the benefit of it but the fact that like a lot of like the FBI like shooter people were really slow to accept it and like how terrible that went and how things could have gone differently in some of these was really interesting because it'd give you a lot of like the insight to people of like and also like why we say these things and like they work with like psychological psychologist to like figure out like oh like how to talk to people and why people act the way they do and like what they're going to do when they're cornered in these situations and like what words and things that we should say to people and what we shouldn't say to people like because like at one point with the charlie guy in the very beginning he says something about like oh because like the um his boss was like Oh, because he wanted a helicopter. That was like a whole thing about him getting on a helicopter. And he was like, make tell him he needs to ask him to surrender one more time. And he's like, oh, my boss wants me to say, ask you to surrender one more time. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I want to get on the helicopter. And then Gary's like, all right, I won't beat that dead horse anymore. And he was like, what? Yeah. Is that going to happen to me? And he was like, I shouldn't have said that. My fucked up. So like right. definitely kind of like saying that was nice. And also like not nearly as like dark and gory as some uh, FBI serial killer books are. So well on that note um i would definitely call mine a little more dark and gory uh yeah, i agree <laughs> no one it, would it kicks did. off that way although not directly anyways i did mind hunter yay. yay um the little like subtext is inside the fbi's elite serial crime unit so it's by john douglas and mark olshaker um really this whole thing though was like from john douglas's perspective Okay. I think the other person there, I, I don't know exactly what they did for the book. I'm guessing like research and information and that kind of thing. Cause mm-hmm. it seemed like a lot of detail to have to know. So it sounds yeah. like they kind of like work together to like put together all of these stories. Yeah. Um, also they've written a lot of books when I was researching this, they have like four or five and I kept being like, that sounds good. And then I was like, that's by the same people. I want to do something different. Dang it. So yeah, it sounded like he'd written a couple. So that's what I did. Um, Mm-hmm. needed water my basement's like super dry i'll see yeah my throat's really dry from all of my talking so awful uh anyways so i did this one because it was on my shelf and it's what netflix's mindhunter show is based on mm-hmm. i'm gonna say right off the bat though that like mindhunter the show it uses like the first quarter of the book and then, oh. like the rest of it felt way more like criminal minds like and see like the book felt like more criminal minds or the show the book like so the book oh the book Ooh. so like in the book itself like the first quarter is really focused on like the mind hunter part of it where they're like interviewing serial killers right mm-hmm. and then the other three quarters felt a lot more um criminal mindsy where they're talking about like a more developed version of this like fbi unit where they're actually like hunting down people oh and like providing cool. profiles so 
if I mention like the wrong terminology or whatever, it's because there's a lot of confusion in my brain between the shows <laughs> and what happens in this book. Anyways, so John Douglas is one of the most well-known um, agents in the what is it called now? I'm not going to say BAU because it's not I correct. I was just about to say the behavioral analysis unit. And then as soon as you said not that one, I was like, no. The investigative myself. support unit is at least what he had named it. I don't oh. know what it's currently named. Well, that's I, why we shouldn't like let agents name things. I think we should give that to like creative professionals, maybe an artiste, right. if you will. You well, know? there's a reason for it, right? Okay. So basically... What John did was he started off his life as like a sports person. And he talks about how like the way that he felt that he used like pitching, for example, like he realized that like his behavior could influence the behavior of other people around him, right? Like mm -hmm. he could come off mm -hmm. as confident and it would make people intimidated or whatever the case may be. So like he kind of had this skill already, right? Where he kind of knew that he could kind of manipulate the people around him and their behavior and like make them kind of do certain things like he's got that kind of personality i want to have that i want to be all right like, i was like i never like, you have to be like, so confident you have to be so confident in your own life and abilities and i'm not especially <laughs> to do that from like a young age to yeah. like recognize that and then like start utilizing that to your benefit um so like as a kid like he had a couple runs at the law it was like nothing major it was like stupid college stuff honestly it was nothing wild um but he ends up ends up as a young person like they do spend a lot of time in his like history but it's really not that important the yeah. whole thing is like he grew up and then he worked for the fbi this unit that's what matters here yeah that's all um, i care about so as like a fairly young person he um met an fbi agent and this fbi agent was like well i think you would make a good fbi agent and so he gets him an interview and uh he starts working for the fbi but he doesn't work for this like behavioral science unit which is what it's called at the beginning um right away he actually works i think they tell him to work for like 10 years within the fbi before they want him to specialize so like he does a bunch Jeez. of other I like think that's, random field jobs i think that was like gary i think it was like five to eight years before he even like got some way before we even got to yeah. like take the two-week course that he wanted it was like yeah. seven years and then they're like yeah you can take this two-week course I suppose exactly so like he starts the FBI at like 25 and like that's the whole thing in Mindhunter right is that like so John Douglas like equivalently in the show Mindhunter is basically Holder where he's like younger and he kind of comes in and he helps really shape what's what's going on and like how the unit develops mm -hmm. um but like it's not the same. So like he comes to the FBI, he does some other various things um, where he kind of uses this like profiling skill to work with hostage situations, other interrogation situations. Um, I think he does like some terrorist stuff. Anyways, he works for a variety of different um, branches. And eventually he realizes that like profiling is something he wants to do because they offer um, classes that you can take for the FBI. Like they have like classes at Quantico that you can attend basically mm -hmm. like seminars. And he was like, yeah, that's definitely something, something that I would do. So he's very interested in becoming a profiler. And I think that's freaking great because clearly all of his skills point to this being his strength in life. Yeah. I was like, this is basically made for you. Like, yeah, I was going to say, but like, I've knowing, never seen anyone fit like that. Knowing what we know now about him, like perfect placement for this person. Like, yeah, I've never known anyone to so perfectly fit into a career. Right. Exactly. Like just the whole buildup was like absolutely fitting for him to become this person so 
like Holder in the show, John Douglas, so when he starts at the BSU, it's kind of a joke at the FBI. So, like, I guess Hoover didn't like the soft sciences, like psychology. And so they basically called it, you know, BS. Like, it's called BSU. So they called it BS. And so, like, mm -hmm. his goal was, like, take the BS out of what they did. So that's what he wanted to do. Um, what they had to do when he first started is their primary job was essentially road school where they would travel around and, like, teach about how they were basically analyzing crime scenes psychologically and looking at the behavior of the killer and the victim because whatever happens to the victim and the way the victim would respond to any situation the killer or unsub puts them in, I suppose, um, like, really dictates what went down right like you can't mm -hmm. just look at who the the person who perpetrated this crime is like you have to know how their victim would have responded and how it would have like made that other person respond so like they dig really deeply into both the victim and who that victim is as well as who um the the unsub could be like the the number one question that they ask is like who could have done this like what kind of person would have wanted to do this thing hmm. so like that's yeah. the number one question they ask and he's like and that's a question I've always asked myself like when I've you know come up to something like who would do this like why would they do that and so like that becomes his job which I think is kind <laughs> of great um but the thing is when they're doing road school it's all just application but no like actual real world practice so during road school they haven't actually done any cases like oh. none of that has happened they're not doing any of that paid to and just like teach people ideas kind of a thing basically so it's just like they haven't bought into the the idea of doing behavioral science as like a way to actually catch people yet enough but they have bought into it just enough to allow them to teach people about it. It's like they're gauging interest. I'm not really sure like why they would do mm. that. Like, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but the thing is like, they do start getting some like people asking them questions. And so while they're doing road school, they get to interact with like local law enforcement and other field agents. And they do get to like, okay, well, based on the scenario you've described, I think this kind of person would do it. So like in that way, they're can kind I, of indirectly. Can I guess, is it a white male in his mid twenties or thirties? It always is. Does he um, hate his mom? <laughs> Sorry. I had to interject. It was, just not, too it was too criminally mindsy. He set me up so good. I had to do it. You're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, he talks about how the fact is that like most serial um, unsubs, like they're mostly men. Like it's mm -hmm. usually men. Like yeah. women don't do it very often. Yeah. Like that's why it's very like a big deal like when there's a woman yeah. uh, serial killer around yeah. we can do anything we want but we yeah. choose not to exactly so like while they're doing road school and they're kind of sort of helping like other local agents with their cases um they're getting some sort of recognition essentially where they're like hey that was actually useful right like i was able to actually find the perpetrator because they gave me a, a general idea of who this person was and it like helped narrow down the search and i think that was super cool um, so while they're doing this, they decide that they really need to be able to develop a little bit further, like who these people are, right? And he, he, he says a few times, um, like you can't know the artist until you like study their art. So like, it's the same kind of deal. Like mm. you have to, I bet people hated him for that though. Study those crimes and talk to those people. It, exactly. It doesn't make you very popular. Like none of this did. It didn't sound like people liked him much, honestly. Um, uh, so they decide to start interviewing serial killers, which is obviously what Mindhunter is. Like they mm -hmm. do all of the serial killer interviews. That's why we care about the TV show. Yeah. I care about the TV show. Um, there is a lot of background information in here, like about the FBI and like how literature utilized personality traits based on like for bad guys. So like, I guess like Ed Edgar Allan Poe, um, a lot of his literature 
uh, was like, like you saw examples of this kind of like investigative, like what your behavior is, like dictates like your actions and that kind of thing in literature before we actually saw it in any law enforcement type of practice. Hmm. And like Sherlock Holmes was the first person in literature to actually like apply this as law enforcement, essentially, like this oh, kind of investigative cool. properties, right? So yeah. it's kind of cool how they talked about how like literature was really the first step into this actually becoming something that we do. Yeah, that's cool. You know, yeah. like I thought that was a really cool comparison, especially considering it's a book, you know. Yeah, no books big books. deal. <laughs> Now I want to read Sherlock Holmes. I never have. We'll have to come up with a reason to read it. Yes, we definitely will. Um, And so I guess it's like a really high honor, like in the FBI, like this particular unit to be like compared to Sherlock Holmes, because it's like, that's, that's the ideal is like, Mm -hmm. that's what he does is like, he looks around a room, he sees all the clues and he makes a deduction based on like, he'll be like, that guy's going to have a pig leg or whatever, you know, Sherlock Holmes (laughs) is impressive as hell. I don't know if you've watched Sherlock at all with like uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, but it's just, it's wild. But that's the the one where you have like three episodes a season, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the same yeah. But it's the same type of, you know, investigation. It's the same mm-hmm. type of the application. And so um, John Douglas was like, well, in order to be able to like really apply this, like we need to do more research. We have to know more. So they start traveling around doing interviews. They don't actually have any like buy-in from the FBI to do these interviews when they first start. They just start doing it. Oh, so, like, they didn't even like well, ask? Ask for forgiveness. Like I get behind they kind that. Of just, That's my yeah. main working thought, you know. Yeah, I mean, they did do enough, honestly, up front that they were able to, like, get that buy-in to, like, do, like, 50 interviews or something crazy with, like, different serial offenders, which is pretty cool. Um, But, yeah, initially, they just, like, they didn't call prisons ahead of time. They didn't let anybody know that they were going to do this. They just showed up. Like, if they happened to be in the area for road school, they would call, like, they would just, like, show up to the prison and do it. Um, Oftentimes, though, they felt that, like, if uh, the serial offender, because a lot of them are, like, incredibly clever and manipulative, Mm -hmm. Knew beforehand that the FBI were coming, they would have more time to prepare, right? Or oh, like it was yeah. better to catch them off guard too. So like there's a combination of like not wanting to piss off people that you work with and like trying to catch these people off guard. Yeah, they'll say because yeah, if you. it's more of like if it's a performer type person, which I feel a lot of these people kind of are that manipulative of like I'm gonna put on a show, you won't mind me yeah. hit it so as raw and real. Yeah, exactly. And like when um, J Edgar Hoover died he they they were able to have like a lot more freedom too as to like being able to actually do some of these interviews which is why they got that buy-in to actually do these additional interviews because i think they only did like 10 or 15 or so before they had to like really get it like run past for approval um so just like the show um they did hit on a lot of major no killers during these interviews um that was that was kind of fun that was a fun ride like i said this is really only the first quarter of it at this point um because they get into a lot of the development of the the um the unit which is very cool so edmund kemper is the co-ed killer right um i'm not going to go into like gross details on anything because i don't really want to deal with that being on our podcast but yeah. and i feel like of it, there are a lot of Serial killer podcast. If you want to learn, there's a ton of people who cover there's him and many others. Go into detail, or just look exactly. at his Wikipedia page. He probably has one. Let's yeah. be honest. But for the purpose of this particular book, they do tell you the details of what happens, like what the crimes that they've committed. Um, but really, the focus here is like the behavior and the little things that they do that like indicate who this person is. Because as a profile, what you do is you like you look at the actions that they've done and like that is going to tell you what kind of person it is, right? Like their behavior really kind of dictates who they are 
um, we're like, that's kind of where they differ from psychologists, right? Psychologists, they talk to you and like what you tell them, they try to predict what your actions are going to be. So like, that's oftentimes why like um, psychologists in prisons let people out who are dangerous because they a lot of times have so many prisoners that they don't even have time to actually look into the crimes these people have committed. They're just oh. like, oh, they came into a group and they said the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do go into that a little bit in here. Um, but anyways, Edmund Kemper was one of the major ones. The first one that they interviewed, and I love it. He's <laughs> he's ridiculous and scary because he's a big old dude who've done some really wild things. Anyways, um, after their interview with Edmund Kemper, who is the co-ed killer, they were able to make a few deductions. So because of these people that I'm going to list being the first interviews that they did, they were able to like really get a lot of information and then like start creating like base profiles for different types of offenders, which I thought was pretty cool. So like based off of their interview with Edmund Kemper, they saw additional things that were going to repeat in other serial offenders. Things like Rarely does a subject direct their anger at the person who it's actually focused on, but on surrogates, right? So you see this pattern pop up a lot in like Criminal Minds and other television shows where the person that they're killing may like look like the person that they're mad at, right? But it's not actually that person because they don't want to kill that person because they have an emotional attachment to that person. So like they're obviously not a psychopath, but they could be a sociopath. So there's like all these little differences. Um, After the Edmund Kemper, they also saw things like... um, Uh, They were able to figure out that like the nonverbal cues that we use to size people up don't apply to sociopaths because they'll just like, they can fabricate that. They don't, they don't have like natural reactions to things like Edmund Kemper would do things like just look at his watch to make you think that like he didn't actually have time for you. So it would put hitchhikers at ease because they thought, oh, you're not like, I'm not his focus. Like he's got other things to be doing more important than murdering me right yeah. now. Well, really, he's just like learning to mask, which like a lot of people do. They can mask, but he's just doing it in like a bad way of like, he's doing it to try to make right. you feel comfortable so he can kill you versus, oh gosh, I just hit my mic versus just people who are trying to mask to just get through their day. Right. But it's like small, subtle things that you do that like you don't even think about that like can put other people like make them uncomfortable or put them at ease yeah. that but he knows he's doing able it. to do, but he does it intentionally. It's a yeah. planned thing. But like as a, as another normal human who doesn't have those tendencies, like you don't recognize it. And so you don't see the danger. Um, so those were some of the, like the main things they learned from Edmund Kemper that do crop up in most serial killers. And I think that those were pretty interesting um, facts uh, overall, like manipulation, domination, and control are the violent offender watchwords. So, like, that's what they look for on like people's like rap sheets. Like, those are the three mm-hmm. things that they're looking for to see if they can like predict future behavior. Super interesting. Um, they also interviewed Charles Manson. So, he's the helter skelter guy who wanted to start a race war, mm-hmm. who didn't actually kill anybody directly. Yep. But that's, um, that's his what he's got going for him. He didn't kill a single person, technically. Yeah. Um, so one of the things with like Charles Manson is like, he's actually pretty small. I think he's only like five, eight, five, yeah, nine. He's a tiny, like, little, he's guy pretty tiny little guy. And so Especially going in into this relation to Edmund Kemper, right? Cause Edmund Kemper's like six, four, yeah. like he's a big dude. Um, so like they're trying to figure out, like they wanted to do Charles Manson because like, he's very, you know, they're very different. Like those are very different human beings. Like where Edmund Kemper was very hands-on and direct, like Charles Manson wasn't like, how did he manipulate these people into killing somebody? Um, like, so with Charles Manson being small in stature, he would do things like sit on chairs. So like, you even see him do this in criminal minds when he walks into the room, he sits up on a chair because it gives him height. And so it makes him appear more domineering. Yeah. 
So like he does Clever. little things like that to like make himself like appear to be more like overbearing. Right. And so I thought that that was really interesting. Like it's really the way that they present themselves to like help manipulate the people around them. Um, John Douglas did say that he felt that Charles Manson didn't actually intend for any of those murderers murders to happen, but it was a situation he lost control of where he had spent all of his time manipulating his followers and like luring them into doing whatever he wanted with drugs that they've gotten to this drug haze and like in their need to appease him or do what he wanted, they got out of control and they killed these people. And then when they said that they did it, he was like, yeah, I totally meant to do that because he didn't want to appear like he'd lost control. Yeah. So you had to double down and be like, good. I'm glad yeah. that you did. You understood exactly what I wanted. Interesting. Right. And I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense, especially for someone who's like a hardcore narcissist who would never be able to admit that they lost control of the situation. So it's like all of these like like huge like red flags basically they're able to like mark down as like hey this is like this is what you would expect to see in this type of murder this is what you would expect to see in this type of situation like here is why they might confess to something that maybe they didn't intend to happen or didn't do on purpose like so it's really interesting to see them kind of go down the line while they're doing these interviews and just develop what that like base profile would look like um, but it also was interesting that he talked about how because of how different each offender is and like the needs that they like get out of the crime that they commit is so different. Um, like it's impossible to give like basic advice for any situation. So like, say you're attacked in a club, like, is it going to be better for you to fight this guy off right now? Or should you wait and try to talk to him calmly? You know what I mean? Like some of them like want you to fight back. And some of them, like if you pretend that you're into it so that they'll stop. They get mad about that. Like, so like there was this one guy who was like more pissed that she like pretended to enjoy being attacked basically because she thought that he would stop because he got what he wanted, but like, it just pissed him off more because that's not what he wanted out of it. Like he wanted the control and he wanted the fear. So like, it's just all of these like little things that like sociopaths can think of. Um, it's just like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to manipulate people in that way. You know, yeah. as somebody who doesn't have those tendencies, who is not like wired that way, that's yeah. I also don't have that much control over my emotions. I'll be perfectly honest. I, I can't, super don't. I can't think through all those things. I can't think to look at my watch to like make you think I don't have time. If I'm looking at my watch, I'm doing it to be like wrap up the meeting. Like, and that is a specific thing that I want you to pick up on. Not like, oh, I don't have time for you. I'm definitely not going to murder you. Yes, I will. I'm not trying to lure you into a false sense of security. Like, no, yeah, that's not. A I'm trying to get you away from me while looking at my watch is actually what I'm doing. So now, yeah, now we're both confused on what's happening here. Yeah. So there's a lot of like the opposite of what you would expect that goes on and like the behavioral of ser serial offenders. Um, so some additional things that are like pretty common in serial offenders is like the gradual increase in behaviors, like going from like lurking and like stealing underwear which is like trophy collecting essentially to like choking somebody to murder. So like, usually that's something that you see, like someone doesn't normally just like wake up one morning and decide to like, I don't know, strip the skin off of five people. It's not a thing they do. Yeah. They've <laughs> done it to like a bunny or something first. Right. Exactly. Like, like we were talking about with Edmund Kemper, like he had a history of, um, I think he was, he skinned the cat or something like he skinned his mother's cat because he'd been locked in a basement. So like, you can see how like a lot of these people 
like they had awful lives and like you feel bad about them but the thing is like he goes into a lot about um like the insanity defense right so like we go into a lot of detail about a lot of these cases that i like i said i don't want to get into like you can read it if you want any of these details but um one of the main things that we do discuss in the book is the insanity defense and how there's a big difference between like the actual diagnosis of insanity versus like the legal definition like the legal definition of insanity is like did you know it was right or wrong where like mm. the de- definition of insanity medically is just like are you out of your mind yeah <laughs> like but you can know right or wrong and not and not be out of your mind or be out of your mind like either way right mm-hmm. so he talks um one of the things i thought was really interesting is like he has never met a serial offender who's been so compelled to commit their crime like that it's actual insanity right that they didn't know was right or wrong because no serial offender has ever been so compelled to do so that they've done it in front of an officer oh yeah or like on camera like easily where they could be caught yeah there are so many examples of people like going hunting i'm putting that in air quotes um because that's you know like kind of the term that they refer to like when they're looking for a victim um but there's so many examples of like like you know pairs or even individuals of people going hunting and choosing to not do that that day because they didn't have an opportunity so Mm -hmm. right there is part of the reason why like insanity defenses are not very good and they're usually not very successful because um jurors don't usually have a lot of empathy for it because it's kind of hard to see during these scenarios it's like okay but you chose not to that other day but you were so compelled to do so that day especially for a serial offender for the one-offs it's i feel like it's easier to go oh okay like something snapped and that's the thing but you did this to 10 people but not to those other five yeah yeah, like you totally nailed it. Like with one-offs, it totally makes sense that they just lost control. Like they snapped or whatever. But mm-hmm. for cereal, like usually there's an effort to cover it up. There's an effort to get away. That's not yeah. like something that you're so compelled to do that you can't stop. Yeah. And like, like, I feel like sure, snapped, you you're not them, taking a trophy probably like. Right. You're, you don't, you're not organized enough. Usually yeah. if you've snapped and you literally don't know right from wrong in the moment, like that's very different. Um, So I thought that that was a really interesting point. Like that's true. You don't. That's a choice. Like you yeah. might be ill and those illnesses might have compelled you to do a thing, but you still chose to do it or not to do it. Yeah. Like you still know right from wrong. You're still thinking about, cause you're also finding the right person in the right situation. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you're not doing it at a police station during the middle, like their morning meeting. Yeah. You're not like so compelled that every morning you walk into a random building Mm-hmm. and have to kill one person because your OCD dictates it. Like, that's yeah, not a thing. Because that would be terrifying if you could get away with that. If every yeah, single morning be somebody was being was killed cur- yeah. and you were getting away with it, terrifying. Exactly. Like, I don't know. I found that, like, particular piece of information like that, like, thread to be really interesting in this book. Um, so he do- goes into other um, additional things, like uh, um, interviewing techniques that they developed over time. So they talk about like staging interviews. So some of these things that they talk about in this particular section, like are straight out of criminal minds. I'm only going to go into a couple of them, but they're pretty funny. Um, So one of them is that everybody has a rock. And so a rock basically is just like something that they can't help but be compelled to look at or like is important to them. And you know that it's important to them. So like in a specific scenario when someone killed somebody, he had them set a rock that was the the bludgeoning item on a table at like a degree in which in order for the killer to look at it he would have to turn his head so it'd be obvious and he was like and if it's him he won't be able to not look at that rock because he used that rock and he knows it you know and it's bloody like 
So like, I thought that was a really interesting that they kind of stage these interviews in a way so that like, they've got all this paperwork that it could be blank, but it has their name on it. They've got pictures behind them. But they like do it to put on enough pressure. Um, they talk a lot about how, like, even if you're an experienced interviewer, like you, you get asked the right question, you're going to sweat. <laughs> like, it's just an automatic response. Like you can't really help it. So um, they develop a lot of techniques over the years that will have, um, like things like that, like making sure that they do interviews at a certain time of year so that it really puts the pressure on like right before their birthday and or right before Christmas so that they think this is the, my last holiday season with my family. And so that adds an additional like layer of stress or like if you knew they had like an anniversary of an important death coming up, you would do it around that time to like add on to the pressure or their existing stressors. Um, so this book essentially is just like how they developed all these techniques and like different cases that they work that um, kind of led them to these conclusions. The, the investigative support unit, they said that they don't actually do any direct crime solving. So the way in Criminal Minds, how it's portrayed, where they like go out into the field and like actually catch people, that's not how they do it. They only do the briefing where they talk about the profiles. Um, they might now do some more of that. Like there's been a couple of times in the book where he mentions that he goes out into the field to help and he says it's unusual and not usually how that works. He provides a profile which allows them to narrow down their suspect list and like advises on how they can um, like kind of use the media to, to lure out killers or uh, the strategy they should take in court. So that's the kind of thing. So they really advise on like behavior. Um, like at their core and I thought that that was really interesting and obviously that's why I watch Criminal Minds <laughs> absolutely fascinating the book it, um as a whole I felt like it was a little boring at the beginning like I don't Learning really need to hear your background life. sir yeah. but like also yeah I do need to learn about his background like yes it was pretty cool that like he already had signs of being a profiler so like you could totally see those like trait than another human being or whatever um but it's pretty impressive the way that he just like developed this whole unit based on kind of a hunch and just like his gut feeling so yeah as a whole I would I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it like a four and a half because it was really good I could totally visualize a lot of it because I'd seen some of these shows um like I said a lot of the cases that they do go into I saw them happen on Criminal Minds. I was like, oh, they use this, this case is obviously based on this, ep or this episode is based on this case the other way around, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was really, it, I thought it was really interesting and I totally worth a read. Awesome. Well, I also want to add, uh, so Blake has listened to it like twice now. And granted, he is a re-listener, like he'll re-listen to books a bunch of times, mm -hmm. but he has been trying to get me to listen to it for forever. He says it's great. So if anybody out there, likes an audiobook and is interested in this apparently like the narration is really good and totally worth it so That's there's cool. that i'll listen to it eventually but You'll every time that. i think about it i'm like home alone and i'm like and eh, there's only so much mm. murder that i can handle when i don't have somebody else to die first you know what i mean like i can't mm -hmm. show someone else That's all. That's you what get I murdered first exactly you get it exactly uh so yeah next episode can't remember the topic off the top of my head but we totally have it picked out it's gonna be super great and awesome i think also, it's new york time bestsellers yeah we're gonna talk about those because there's lots of them a ton of them uh no romance books we can talk about that then um also august has minis so go ahead be on the lookout for those we are doing something we're branching out and doing something totally brand new to us so come back see uh if we liked it if we hated it 
if we'll never do it again. I don't know. I'm a little scared if I'm being honest. I'm a little intimidated. I'm a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah. So come back. See how see how it worked out. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends. Y'all know our socials by now. Instant uh, Instagram is in a faster red time and Twitter IIPYB underscore pod. You can also check out our website to see what we talked about in the past. Check out the archive and what's coming up next at isn'titpastyourbedtime.com. Yeah. And I think that's all we got. So I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit more about a super fun government agency. And yeah, we'll talk to everyone later. Bye, everyone. Bye.